Anybody there? Getting there. Getting close. Getting warmer. Lord, we just thank you so much for this morning and for those beautiful reminders of who you are. That you are the way maker. You make a way where there is no way. Lord, you said you are the way. And to follow you, we thank you for that. Thank you that you are the miracle worker, that you are still in the miracle business. And what an amazing miracle you've done in our lives, rescuing us, setting us free, saving us, changing us, fixing us, working in our hearts and in our lives so beautifully. Thank you that you are the promise keeper. It's not up to us. You've given us exceedingly great and precious promises. And Lord, you tell us it's by faith and patience we inherit those promises. So we don't need to strive. We can look to you in all things. And we just thank you so much that you are our God. We are your beloved. We are your children. Not by keeping rules, by performance, but by simply trusting in your complete work for us on the cross. And we thank you, Jesus, for your work and the glorious work you've begun in each one of us that you're going to complete. And so we thank you. We can't wait for you to work in our hearts this morning by your grace, by your spirit, and for your glory we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, amen. amen. All right, so uh, we left off uh, kind of in the middle of this book. Remember what Paul is communicating um, to these churches. Um, Paul is trying to help them because they have gotten off course. Remember when Paul came to this area of Galatia, he came, it's in modern day Turkey, he preached the gospel, people got saved, radically born again, their lives touched and transformed by the Holy Spirit. Um, A work of God had begun there, and when Paul had left, there were these people that followed him into town, they rode into town, what were they, what was their name again? Judaizers, thank you, Judaizers, and what they would do is when they would come into the church, And they would be given a platform or an opportunity to share. And what they said was, um, it's great what Paul shared with you, but he didn't give you the full story. He didn't tell you everything. There's some things that are missing from your salvation. It's, It's great that you made Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior, but, hey, Jesus was a Jew, therefore you must become a Jew. You must put yourself under the law, the Mosaic law. You must keep all of the the rules, the regulations, the feast days, the dietary uh, laws as well, all these different things. Dude, you need to get circumcised. It's not good news, is it? No hospitals. But that's what they're saying. and, And here's the deal. The church bought into it. They bought into it, and they began to follow this false teaching. And here's the deal. Paul knew what that type of teaching would produce in a life because he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, wasn't he? And all we have to do is look at what legalism produces in a life, following rules, setting standards, trying to keep standards to to attain to righteousness or maintain righteousness before God. And what it produces in a life is, is brutal. It produces religious monsters. It produces unloving people. And the problem is you're no longer, you're not trusting in Jesus' complete work for you on the cross. Now you've become God's helper. Now you're adding to the work that Jesus has done. And that's not the good news. The good news is that it is finished, paid in full. Jesus paid your sin debt, my sin debt, in full, and when we placed our trust in Him, not only have we been forgiven of all of our sins, our sins forgiven, forgotten, gone forever, but the very righteousness of Jesus Christ is given to us as a free gift. You can't earn that righteousness, you can't make it better. It's all of us have received, as Isaiah spoke about in Isaiah 61, we've been given the robe of righteousness as a free gift when we placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And Paul's concerned with the church. And look what he says in verse 11. I'm afraid for you. I'm really scared for you. Why? 
lest I have labored for you in vain, that my labor to the point of exhaustion, that's what labor means. Paul labored to the point of exhaustion, pouring into these people, making disciples. He says, all of that labor, I feel like it's been worthless. It was in vain. It was for nothing. And he goes on, he says, brethren, verse 12, I urge you, I beg you to become like me. Why? For I became like you. You have not injured me at all. You know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at first. And my trial, notice this, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. What then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that, if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Have I, therefore, become your enemy? Because I tell you the truth. I mean, can you imagine the Apostle Paul coming here this morning and saying, family, brethren, I beg you, I'm urging you. And he uses that a lot. There's a lot of times Paul's urging and begging us about something. And what does he say? He says, become like me. Use my life as a model. In other other words, he's saying, become free like me. You need to free yourself up. No longer have an approach to God that is based upon following the law, following rules. We're no longer under the tutor. We're no longer under the law. We've been set free. The tutor did its job, the law, pointing us to Jesus, showing us our need for Jesus. But once we come to trust in Jesus, we're no longer under the tutor any longer. Paul says, become like me, become free, because I became, what, like you. I became free of rules, free of regulations. In fact, you remember what Paul said, if you're taking notes, 1 Corinthians 9, the apostle Paul said, I have become all things to all men, that I might win them. To the Jew, I became like a Jew. To the Gentile, I became like a Gentile or the non-Jew. Why? Because he wanted to reach them with the gospel of Jesus Christ, to connect with them. In fact, the apostle Paul wrote, follow me as I follow, follow me as I follow Christ. He didn't say follow me as I follow the rules, did he? Follow me as I walk with Jesus, as I fo- to the extent that I follow Jesus. Jesus. And he says, look what he said at the end of that verse, end of verse 12. He says, you've not done me wrong. You haven't injured me. In other words, I'm not saying this from a place of hurt. In fact, you know, verse 13, he takes them, what does he do here? He takes them on a trip on memory, down memory lane. And what does he say? He says, you know this. You know, you can look back and see and remember when I came to you, it was because of what? What does your Bible say? Because of what does your Bible say? Physical, does it say physical infirmity in your Bibles? It was because of this physical infirmity, because of this disease, because of this illness, because of this physical issue. We know it's a physical issue because Paul says in that next verse, he says, it was in my flesh. It's some kind of a physical infirmity. Because of that infirmity, I came and did what? I came and preached to you the gospel. How do you guys do when you're sick? You preaching the gospel? <laughs> Listen, I'm not there yet, personally. I was sick, you guys know, a few weeks ago. And it was like, when I'm sick, it's like, lock me in the room, glue the door shut, nail it shut. When the growling ceases, <laughs> let this guy out of his cage. And listen, I'm, just, I'm being totally honest with you. Pray for me. Because I know the Lord wants to sanctify that area of my life that I would reflect more of Jesus even when I'm sick. Because it says because of this infirmity, and and, and we don't know what the infirmity was, just like in 2 Corinthians 12, we don't know what Paul's thorn in the flesh was, correct? Do we know? No, because what would we do? We'd compare thorns with one another. My thorn's better than your thorn. No, my thorn's worse than your thorn. No, 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 no. We don't know. Some believe it was malaria. I believe personally from the text that he had an eye problem. Why? Because what did it say? You would have gladly plucked out your eyes and given them to me. In chapter 6, he's going to say, look at with with, with what large writing I'm writing this letter in. 
Why do you need larger font? Because your eyes are what, getting better? They're get, I know my, my font now has to be giant. I'm getting ready to get some, some goggles, some glasses. Not Mr. Magoo's yet, but I'm going to need some here pretty soon. And so Paul, I think, had some type of an eye issue. But here's the thing. I think we need to notice this. Number one, this illness brought Paul to Galatia. And number two, this illness didn't stop Paul from preaching the gospel, from sharing the good news. The Lord used it. God allowed the infirmity in his life, and God used the infirmity to bring Paul there to share with these people. Why? Because God loves those people. And if you're willing and open to say, Lord, here's my life, he will use your life. You know that? Do you guys know that tonight, this morning? He'll use your life. Here I am, Lord, send me. I'm down. Whatever, I'm, I'm down. Whatever you want to do. And Paul boasted in his, in his infirmities, didn't he? He said, I'll boast in those. Why? Because when I am weak, then he is strong. And Jesus told him, right? My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. I think we forget that sometimes. It's like when we, are, when we are going through distresses and reproaches and illnesses and, and suffering those things, the Lord wants to show himself mighty on our behalf if we would only look to him and say, Lord, fill me up, use me. Here's my life to be used for your glory. Look at verse 14. And my trial, which was in my flesh. And so Paul recognized this is a trial. This is a test that the Lord is allowing me to go through. When we are tested and tried, what are we to do? Ladies, Bible study this week, Tuesday, James chapter 1, count it all joy when, not if, when you fall into trials of various kinds. Knowing now what? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces, produces patience, but let patience have its complete or full work that you may be perfect, complete, lacking nothing. I, listen, I'm learning. I, a couple weeks ago, I was not rejoicing. In my trial, I, when Paul said, when Paul and James write these things, it's like I want to learn this by correspondence class or online. Can I learn these lessons online? They can't be. Listen, you can't YouTube or Google this stuff. We have to walk through this, and when we do, and when we look to Him, we experience His grace and His strength. And so Paul says, "Listen, when I came this way, when I was in this condition, you did not what? You did not look down on me. You did not." despise me. You weren't disgusted by me. But what? You welcomed me. You warmly welcomed me, reverently welcomed me as if I was a messenger from heaven, an angel, or even as if I was Jesus Christ himself. In fact, look what he asks a question in the next verse. What then was the blessing you enjoyed? You were super excited when I came, when I shared the gospel with you. And what happened when he did? Their lives were touched. They were transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit, right? God did miracles by his spirit in their midst, did awesome stuff. They were excited, we're saved, we're so glad to be saved. The joy of the Lord is radiating from their lives. Man, I'm a child of God. I'm adopted into the family. Wow, I have an inheritance. I had nothing and now I've got everything in him. They were excited. And Paul's like, what happened? He says, look it, I'm going on record concerning you. If you could, you would have plucked out your own eyes. Wow. You know what that means? They would have done anything to help him. And I, I look at this and it's like, that's, that's genuine sacrificial love that marked their lives. I'll do anything to help you. And, and isn't, doesn't, that, doesn't that happen in our lives when we get saved? There's a change in our hearts, and in our lives. And their changed lives were marked by love. And here's the thing about this, as we consider this this morning, is that legalism, listen this morning, legalism being a rule keeper, setting standards, and imposing standards on others is legalism. It will suck the love right out of you. It'll suck the love right out of you. How do you know that, pastor? How about the Pharisees? Were they setting standards and rule keepers, the Pharisees? Finger pointing, critical, sin sniffing. And what did Jesus say to them? Listen, 
you're doing right. You, you, hey, you're tithing. You know, you're taking your, 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 uh, your herbs, your spices, one for God, nine for me, one for God, nine for me. But you're majoring in the minors. There's no mercy in your lives. There's no, the, the love of God is not there in your life. And that's what happens. Because we're so focused on us and so focused on others, what we're doing, what they're not doing, etc., that we're not loving anybody. We're just keeping a little rule book, tap, making our tallies, making our marks. It sucks the love right out of you. And Paul is saying this. What happened? Where's the joy that was in your life? Where's the excitement? What is going on? And then he says, look at the next verse. Am I now your enemy because I'm sharing the truth with you? You were touched by the message. Have things changed? Why have things changed? Why are you turning from the message that changed your life? And it, doesn't that happen though? People can love you when you tell them what they want to hear. But then what happens? How quickly the tables turn when you tell them what they need to hear. Anybody ever been there? It says in Proverbs, I think it's 27, the kisses of an enemy are deceitful, but faithful are the wounds of a friend. And Paul viewed himself not only as a friend, but a father to them. He cared about them. As a pastor cares for the flock, he loved them and shared the truth and love with them. And then he begins now to talk about, look what it says, verse 17, they zealously court you, but for no good. Oh, they love you too. They're courting you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you. Why? That you may be zealous for them. But it is good to be zealous in a good thing always. And not only when I am present with you. My little children for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. I would like to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I have doubts about you. So Paul says in verse 17, they zealously court you. Who's the, ze who's the they? Who's the they, gang? Judaizers, these false teachers. They zealously court you. In other words, they're boiling hot for you. They're trying to woo you. They're all lovey-dovey. But notice it says it's for no good. What they really want to do, and that literally exclude means to lock you up, to alienate you. Why? That you may desire, that, that you may be going after them rather than going after Jesus. By the way, that's what cults do. We've had some people in our church that have come out of cults by the grace of God set free. And what cults do is they come at you, they're all lovey-dovey, and they're affectionate, and they get you in, and then they begin to what? They begin to brainwash you, and all of a sudden, they've locked you up, they've isolated you from your family, from your friends, and everyone else, and it's why? Because they want you to follow them. And here's the sad part, it happens all the time. And it even happens in the church. It happened here in these churches. And by the way, that is a sign of a false teacher. Remember in the book of Acts chapter 20. If you're taking notes, you can check it out later. Acts chapter 20, the apostle Paul was on the beach of Miletus. And he was giving like a pastor's leaders conference. You guys remember that? Anybody remember that? Acts 20. And he said, you remember when I was with you, I warned you for three years every day that there would, be, there would be savage wolves that would come from the outside to pick off the flock and there would be men from the inside also that would speak, check it out, they would speak perverse things and draw away the disciples after themselves. They're speaking deceitful things and that's the key mark, drawing the disciples after themselves. What happens now is they put a man between you and Jesus. Does Jesus want any obstruction from us coming to him? That's not a trick question. Does Jesus want an obstruction? No way. In fact, that made Jesus unhappy is when 
people couldn't come to him, when the kids couldn't come to him, when there was a hindrance from anyone coming to him. Listen, I call it, and I've seen it before, it's called Absalom-style ministry. You guys remember Absalom from the Old Testament? 2 Samuel chapter 15, David's son, what would he do? He would hang out just outside the gate, and when people would come to get counsel, to get, to get judgment for their court cases, he would come to them, he would meet them before they got to the gate, and he would go, oh, where are you from? Come here. Oh, that, is that where you're from? Give me your hand. Lovey-dovey. Tell me, how can I help you? You, know, you guys know anybody like that? Oh, if only I were king. If only I were the pastor. Here, let me help you out on this. And it happens. I saw it happen with my pastor, a dude with an Absalom-style ministry. And you know what? It was a work of the flesh. And it bombed out. And so Paul says what? Oh, by the way, you know what? You know what it says about Absalom? He stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Isn't that interesting? He stole the hearts of the men of Israel. You know what that tells me? Our hearts can be stolen. And that's what's happening. That's why Paul is so ticked off in the spirit, if you will. He's not, he's, he's like, man, come on. Your hearts are being stolen. Not from me. I'm not injured. It's Jesus your heart is being stolen from. They're getting in the way of your relationship with the Lord. And so he goes on. It is good to be zealous, deeply committed in what is good always, not just when I am with you. Paul says, listen, you can do good when I'm not there. It's good to be zealous in good things. You can stir up one another to love and to good works. And, and by the way, zeal for a lie is dangerous. Are you with me this morning? I'm seeing some blank stares. Zeal for a lie is dangerous. Paul knew it firsthand. If you're taking notes, I'm going to flip there real quick. Romans 10, verse 1 and 2. I'm going to flip there twice this morning. I'm going to read it. Paul said, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. So they had a zeal for God, but it wasn't coupled with what? It wasn't coupled with knowledge. In fact, Paul would say in Philippians 3, Paul was, said, I was, a reli- I was zealous so zealous I persecuted the church. In fact, those Pharisees and religious leaders of Jesus' day, they were pretty zealous, weren't they? Jesus said, you're so, you're so zealous, you'll travel over, over land and sea to make one convert. And when you do, you make them twice a son of hell as yourself. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, look upon this holy child. That's the truth in love, isn't it? Did Jesus hate them? He loved them. He wanted to rescue them. That's why he would receive an offer to go to the Pharisee's house and continue to reach out to them because he's full of grace, grace upon grace, layer upon layer of grace. Legalism doesn't do that. It's the love of God in our hearts. It's the Holy Spirit transforming and changing us from the inner core of our being. And so, verse 19, my little children, Paul appeals to them as a father, or or rather a mother. Look what it says. You're like my kids whom I love dearly. It's like I'm a mom giving birth all over again. Can you imagine moms having that same child again? I mean, there's joy afterwards, but I don't know anything about the pain. I just root Tanya on. Way to go, babe the best. Hang in there, kid. But I'm told there's some pain and some, there's a lot of effort and anguish involved. But you, but you know what? That's, this, this is discipleship right here. Jesus needs to be developed, shaped within you again. 
And, and, and so what happens? Let, let's take it back just for a minute. When we open our heart to Jesus, what happens? He comes and lives where? In our hearts. We learned that last week, didn't we, gang? There's, so there's a new life that's birthed. Was it by keeping rules that you are born again? Were you really, really good? Was it because of your efforts? Doing a ritual, is that, what, is that why Jesus came into your heart? You opened your heart to him, right? So there's a new life that's birthed within you, and this new life, listen, this is so crucial. If, if you miss everything else this morning, don't miss this. That new life needs to be fed. It needs to be nourished. It needs to be given opportunities to grow, just like when we have a baby, right? You got to feed that baby. You got to care for that baby. Same way spiritually. We need to be nourished and fed the word of God to take steps of faith that we might grow in those things that the Lord has for us. And Paul's like, man, it's back to square one. I, want, I wish I was with you right now. He says, I wish I could change my tone. I want to speak to you differently, but I'm perplexed. I'm, I'm at a loss concerning you all. And by the way, this not only, listen, are we all called to make disciples? Is that for all of us or is that just the elite Christians? Just for pastors, teachers, leaders, is that just for them? So we are all to be making disciples. It starts with me being a disciple and then I make disciples. Disciple making, what's involved is helping that life of Christ be developed in someone else. Are you with me? I'm seeing some yeses. Is everybody with me on that? It's like, it's not hard. It's not like rocket science or for some of you that's easy, I know. Pythagorean theorem. It's like, it's so simple. It's, it's like a baby. You nourish it. You feed it. You care for it. Give it opportunities to grow. Help it. We help that little child. We help them to learn how to walk and ride a bike. And then they're teenagers and you got to teach them to drive, right? Did you guys all do good doing that? I struggle. You just send them to a driving school. I tell you what, that, that will, the Lord will use that to sanctify you if you're teaching your teens. <laughs> Verse 21, tell me, Paul says, you who desire to be under the law. That's their problem. They, want to be un, they have a desire to be back under the law. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law. Do you not hear the law, Paul says? You who, you who want to keep the demands of the law and relate to God that way, have you actually read it? <laughs> Do you know what it says? And, and I think Paul here is not only appealing to the Galatian Christians, saying, have you read your Bibles? But also those Judaizers, the ones that are perpetuating the false teaching and saying, you guys are a bunch of rookies. You don't even know what the Bible teaches. How can you come in and teach them that it's all about relating to God by keeping rules and keeping the law? Man, you don't even see this picture in the Old Testament with Father Abraham. You're claiming Abraham is your father, right? Isn't that, wasn't that the big boast of the Jews? We got Abraham as our father, right? They, they rolled up to John the Baptist at the River Jordan. The supersized tassels swaying in the wind, right? Check us out, dig me. And what did John the Baptist say? You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? Don't think to say to yourselves that we have Abraham as our father. God is able to raise up kids from these stones to Abraham. I wonder if there's smoke coming out of their ears. How do you know what we were thinking? But that's what their big claim. All right, you want to talk about Abraham? And Paul has done this throughout the letter, hasn't he? He brings it back to Abraham, back to Father Abraham. And now he's making a contrast. Please, I'm going to give us a heads up before we enter this. He makes a contrast between real Christianity and legalism. A contrast between freedom and slavery. Let's check it out. He says, For it is written that Abraham had two sons. So Paul begins by giving them a Bible study. And you know what's interesting? He assumed that his listeners already knew the story. He does it often, doesn't he? When, he, te when he shares in his letters. He assumes that all of us already know the story. 
so we don't have to fill in the details. And he begins by saying, Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman. Who was that? Ishmael. And who is the mom? Hagar. Thank you. The other by a free woman. Who was that son? What was his name? Isaac. And who was mom? Sarah. Man, you guys know this already. (laughs) But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh. Who was that? Which son? Ishmael. Ishmael was born according to the flesh. It was a work of Abraham's flesh. He was trying to help God out. We'll talk about that in a minute. And he of the free woman through promise. Who was that son? Isaac. Right? God's promise to Abraham. You will have a son. Right? And he goes on to say, which things are symbolic? For these are the two covenants. For uh, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Clear to everybody? Clear as mud, pastor. Let's keep rolling. (laughs) Let's, Let's break it down. Let's check this out. Abraham. Abraham's story begins back in Genesis 11. You guys remember, what was his name before it got changed? Abram. And he was married to Sarah or Sarai before she got her name changed. They were from Ur of the Chaldees. It tells us in Genesis chapter 11 that she was barren and had no child. He was 75 at that time. She was 10 years younger, 65 years old. And God came to Abraham and said what? Abraham, get up and leave, leave home, leave everything behind, go to the place I will show you, and go there and have a bunch of kids. And, and, but there's a little bit more. And here's how I remember the promise, because it's reiterated five times to Abraham. Five times God reiterates the promise to him I remember it by three S's. You, remember, you ready for this? Seed, sod, and a savior. God promised him, look at the stars in the sky if you can count them. That's how many kids you're going to have, how much seed, how much offspring you're going to have. God promised him sod or land, right? Turf, that's how I remember it. He, look at the land. When he brought him, this is your land. This is your land. This is my land. It's all yours. I'm giving it to you. And then the Savior, Jesus Christ, right, would come through the line of Abraham. Seed, sod, Savior. Easy, easy to remember? And so Abraham, God met with Abraham. Abraham came home. Sarah, honey, uh, we got to leave. God spoke to me today. Which God? Because it tells us in Joshua that they worshiped all kinds of gods. The true and the living God told me. He made a promise to me. So pack up the Honda Accord. Because they were in one accord. That's, you can remember it that way. They, uh, she didn't fight him on it. They traveled eight, approximately 800 miles to the place where God would show them. Show them and it was Canaan. The land of Israel. And, they, and he got there. Again, eight times, check this out, eight times God met with Abraham and each time took him deeper and deeper and deeper into his relationship with him. You guys knew that, right? Preaching to the choir. He gets there and what does he do? He builds an altar and he lives in a, what are he living, guys? Come on, this is important. He lived in a what? 
He lived in a tent. He didn't move into the promised land. God said, this is it, this is yours, and build a big old mansion, little, little flat on the Sea of Galilee. He lived in a tent. Why? Because he was looking forward to the city whose builder and maker is God. The tent defined his relationship to this world. I'm just a pilgrim passing through. This isn't my home. Heaven's my home. And then he built an altar, didn't he? He built an altar. Why? Because that, def- that defined his relationship with heaven. He became a worshiper of the true and the living God. But then famine hit. What? Famine hit, and what did they do? Did they stay put? Did God tell them to go? Did God tell them to go? No. They traveled southbound to, starts with E, rhymes with Egypt. Come on, you guys. Starts where? Egypt. They went to Egypt. And you remember what happened? Abraham said to Sarah, throws her under the bus, right? Tell them you are my sister. Lie. Liar, liar, pants on fire, right? Pharaoh will take you into the harem. I'll be cool. I'll be good. I'm not going to lose my life. God protected them, by the way, because there was promises attached to them. Great reminder. God takes care of us, you guys. So they leave. They get back in their, their Honda Accord, right? Take off, back northbound. But someone's in the back seat. Not only Lot, right, the nephew, but who else? Hagar. Not Sammy, Hagar. This is Hagar, the one we're talking about here. They cruise to the promised land. They're back up there. Ten years, no kids. Sarah turns and looks at Abraham. You're not getting any younger, buddy. Here's Hagar. You get together with her, and we can, we can produce the promised son. It'll be a surrogate-type deal. And what does Abraham say? Duh, okay, that sounds great. And what were they trying to do? They're trying to help God out. Aren't they? Correct? Are you with me? It's a work of the flesh. Have you ever become God's little helper? We can, can we? I have. I know there are singles in our church. They're tired of waiting upon the Lord. And so now they start dating unbelievers. And they know better. They've been taught. They've been instructed and encouraged. And what happens? They don't trust God to work it out and to provide everything they need in Christ Jesus. And so they mix it up with an unbeliever and then it's devastation. I've, I've, produced some, I've produced some Ishmael's myself. Works of the flesh. I'm not talking getting a Hagar or something, you guys. <laughs> but, <laughs> don't get the wrong I'll be saying something to Tanya on Tuesday. <laughs> but works of the flesh. trying to fulfill God's promises in our own wisdom, our own strength. Ishmael is born. Abraham finally hits 99. She's 89. It says they were old, well-advanced in years beyond the reproductive, they couldn't reproduce, beyond the age of childbearing. And who showed up? The Lord showed up, first with Abraham. Hey, you're going to have a son. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Yes. God says, no, 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 no. My promise is with the son that you're going to have with Sarah. And remember what he did? He laughed. Next chapter, God shows up again at Abraham and Sarah's tent. God reiterates the promise. This year, this time next year, you're going to have a son. 
What did Sarah do? She laughed. And what did God say? Why did you laugh? She goes, I didn't. He said, yes, she did. <laughs> I think it says, if you go back, it says she laughed like in her heart or in, within her. But does, the Lord knows, doesn't he? And so his name shall be called Isaac, which means laughter. Because listen, a work of the Spirit always produces joy and laughter. And rejoicing. And so the next year, what happened? They had Isaac. God waited. Check this out. God waited 25 years. Waited 25 years. Why? So that for all time and eternity, we would know that that was his work. A work of his spirit by his grace. God fulfilling his promise. And listen, the Lord wants to do the same thing in your life and in my life. Whether it's in your marriage or your ministry with your kids. God wants to show himself mighty on your behalf. Not so we would take the credit and take the bows for God, but that he would look good. That he would get the praise, the honor, and the glory. Well... Let's look at this now. Let's break it down. So, so Paul says in verse 24, you guys already knew that story though, didn't you? It's good, good to review, isn't it? The story is symbolic. There, there's a picture being presented or illustrated, and God paints pictures throughout the Bible. He's a master teacher. And there's a picture here, listen, before we jump into this, there's a picture here of what? Of trying to do it on your own, in your own strength, in the work of your flesh, to earn right standing before God, or to simply receive the free gift of righteousness by trusting in Jesus Christ. Are you, are you picking up what I'm laying down here? Yes? We good? Because this is a challenging little portion. And Paul says, these are two covenants. One from Mount Sinai. What was given to Moses on Mount Sinai? The, the law which gives birth to bondage. The law doesn't bring freedom or liberty, but what? Bondage, slavery, enslavement, which is represented by Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. Notice that in Arabia corresponds to Jerusalem or is like unto Jerusalem. Jerusalem is now, Paul says, at his, during his day, enslaved to the law, in bondage to the law, with her children. Speaking of the Jews, just as most of the Jews in Paul's day, they are also enslaved to the law, still trying to relate to God by keeping the rules and keeping all of the, the dietary things, dietary laws, etc. They are attempting in the flesh to become righteous before God. I mentioned Romans 10 earlier. I'm going to flip there real quick, and I'm going to read it because it's going to tie in with what I'm communicating here this morning. Paul says in Romans 10, 3, I believe it is. Remember he said zeal. They had zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, speaking of Israel, the Jews, the Israelis, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. And then he goes on to say, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Isn't that beautiful, you guys? So Paul says here, there's a picture being illustrated the contrast in verse 26, the heavenly Jerusalem, I don't have time to look at this, but you can look at it on your own, Hebrews 12, 22 to 24. It's speaking about the heavenly Jerusalem is not enslaved, but is free, which is the mother of us all. You read that and go, what in the world is that talking about? It's speaking about how we are born from above. Remember when Jesus said in John chapter 3, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Literally means a man is not born from above. In other words, um, you guys ever heard the word alma mater? Have you guys ever heard that alma mater? Do you know what alma mater means? It means the school you went to. I went to USC, the University of Southern California. 
That is my alma mater, and I love when we whoop on the Aggies. No, I mean the uh, Longhorns. Making sure you're still with me this morning. Alma mater means, check this out, it means kind and nourishing mother. USC wasn't my nourishing mother. It's where I went to school. But the idea is, is, is that there's that, there's that, uh, that care for, that, that, that the Lord has done in our lives. He's cared about us. He's showed us his goodness. It's his goodness that leads us to repentance. Listen, real Christianity comes from heaven, not from earth. We are born from above. The Bible says in John chapter 1, speaking of Jesus, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, check this out, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Isn't that beautiful? We're born, the Lord does it. It's not by keeping rules. It's not by, by, by meeting standards, not by meeting criteria. It's simply because of our trust and faith in Jesus Christ. And he quotes Isaiah 54 in verse 27. And he, he, what he's saying is, because of this miraculous birth, there are more children of the new covenant than there will be of the old covenant. Does that make sense? You guys, there's more children of the new covenant than there are of the old covenant That's why there's to be rejoicing, O barren, you who do not bear. You who can't have kids, you're sterile. You who don't have kids, you're childless. Burst out and holler. Even though you're not in labor, burst out and holler joyfully. Rejoice. The neglected one has a lot more kids than the one with the husband. Does that make sense, you guys? I heard one yes. Okay, Paul says, quick review, and we're going to be done here in just a second. Quick review. Paul says what? Hagar. Ishmael, Jerusalem are symbolic. What are they symbolic of? Symbolic of, number one, the law. Symbolic of human effort. Symbolic of trying to work, work up righteousness in your own flesh, in your own strength. While Sarah and Isaac, the Jerusalem which is above, are symbolic of God's work of grace a work of his spirit, the promises of God coming, by, we receive them simply by faith. And listen, that's what happen, has happened in our life, hasn't it? Has that, has that happened in your life this morning? It's a picture of what God has done in us and with us. Christ is birthed in us, how? By the power of the Holy Spirit. Because we what? We simply put our faith and trust in him, not by law, not by rules, not by trying, but trusting. Now we, brethren, let's finish up. A couple verses here will be done. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. Not by fleshly efforts, supernaturally, because of our trust, but as he who was born according to the flesh, who was that? Ishmael, then persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, who is that? Isaac. Even so, it is now. And so after Isaac was weaned, you guys remember what happened? There was Ishmael watching, and he mocked him. He made fun of him. He ridiculed him. He persecuted him. And what's so interesting is, when, when God called um, Abraham to bring Isaac to Mount Moriah, you know what he said? Take your son, your only son, the one you love. And Paul says, just like back then, this Ishmael persecuted Isaac, so it is now. What does that mean? You know what it means? Those who are born of the Spirit are harassed, are harmed by those who are what? Attempting to keep the law, attempting to relate to God in their own righteousness. And who knew better than anyone else this? Who's the writer here? Paul knew better than everyone else. That religious people harass the true followers of Christ. It's interesting, legalists do that too, don't they? Those who make rules, set standards, worship their standards, and think they're spiritual because they obey them while they're looking down on others. 
who don't keep their rules or standards. It happens in the church, doesn't it? Sadly. You can't be a Christian and have tattoos. You can't be a Christian and be pierced. One of my best friends is in, you guys, you guys know him, he's been here a couple times, Andres Huerta. Dude's got tats all over his face. He loves Jesus. He got saved and he went right back to where he was gangbanging growing up and is out there preaching the gospel. It's funny because legalists typically, you ask them, when's the last time you shared the gospel? Uh... Hey, I saw that person sitting in the third row over there. They were smoking in the parking lot. Pastor, they were smoking. I saw the butts by their car. They can't be Christians, can they? I don't think smoking will send you to hell. You may smell like it, but... (laughs) Let me hit a little closer to home. Did you know the pastor serves? That, you know what that means? He goes to the beach. And people wear bathing suits and bikinis at the beach. Are you with me? It's like, where's the grace? You forgot or lost sight of God's grace. And and you know what happens? Your worship suffers. Because it's all about you. It's no longer about him. How can you say that? Because remember what Jesus said about the Pharisees? He said, this people honors me with their lips, but what? Their heart is far from me. Why? Because they were sin-sniffing, critical fault finders. And your eyes are off of the Lord. And you've forgotten where you've come from. That's why Paul's warning them. They're going down a trail that is going to wipe them out. It's going to turn them into religious monsters. And Paul said, listen, Paul says, as we close out this chapter, he says, so then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman. We are not offspring of Hagar, but of the free, but of Sarah. And then Paul sums it up. We close 5.1. Remember, there was no chapter or verse breaks when it was written. It was just a letter. Stand fast. Therefore, in the liberty or the freedom, stand fast. Don't be moved in the freedom by which Christ has made us free. Has Jesus set you free? Stand in that. If the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. I love the literal translation. It is for freedom that we have been set free. Not to be in bondage to the... He says it, right? And do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Don't get entangled with that yoke, but take up Jesus' yoke. Jesus said, I am gentle and lowly in heart. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Amen. In Jesus' name. Lord, thank you so much. You made it so simple.